Greetings, everyone. My name is Will Dethridge. Welcome to the relaunch of the Catholic Chat Podcast. I am the Executive Director of Clarifying Catholicism and an MA student in Historical and Systematic Theology at the Catholic University of America. Uh, Caitlin, you can go ahead and go next. Hello. Yes, my name is Caitlin Woodhand. I am a um, Master's in yeah, Historical and Systematic Theology at the Catholic University of America, and it's great to be here. And I'm Joshua Orsi. I'm studying for a baccalaureate of sacred theology here at Catholic, and my parents pay to keep me in college. It's great. Josh, you have such a great voice for this. Aww. Got the radio. And you used to have a radio show, right? I did. Briefly. Before I was Catholic, unfortunately, and I didn't really have much to talk about. That's right. We have a couple converts here. So. Oh, yeah. That's so. Yeah, that's right. I was born raised Catholic, but I forget, like, I can just get to know, uh, have the audience get to know you all better. Um, what was, exactly was you guys' uh, religious upbringing, you know, how'd you end up in this crazy Catholic church of ours? <laughs> uh, go ahead, Caitlin. Yeah, I was raised, like, pretty, I was baptized Methodist, but raised pretty secular, and then, yeah, in high school I just started getting really interested in Christianity. And on, yeah, on a trip to Rome when I was in high school, I um, started getting interested in Catholicism. I saw the Vatican and I thought it was like really beautiful. And as I was going through that experience of like trying to find like which church was the true church, I was like, oh, maybe Catholicism. And then I just started really intensely researching it. And I just ended up coming to the conclusion that Catholicism was true. Nice. So. I'm a little biased here, but I uh, can't blame you there. It seems it's pretty nice. Josh, what about you? Well, I was brought up in a Bible-believing home in various Bible, non-denominational churches. My family still goes to a church which is affiliated with Pentecostalism, although it's a very soft Pentecostal church. It's, it's, it's not uh, what the stereotype is at all. And I am forever grateful uh, to my parents and to the faith of my upbringing for teaching me the Bible and teaching mm, yeah. me about Jesus, and the yeah. love of God, and the essentials of Christianity. And when I went to college, uh, undergraduate, I was, uh, my uh, faith in the, what I understood to be the historicity of the Bible, and I really should rephrase that, the Bible is a historical document, it is, is full of historical facts, it is uh, deeply historical in nature, but my particular understanding of that historicity was, very deeply challenged, and I began to question, you know, how do I know that obviously Christianity is true? How do I know that God exists? How do I know any of these doctrines? And so on and so forth. And that came to an abrupt halt when I read G.K. Chesterton's The mm. Everlasting Man, which was really the first introduction I ever had to a, I shouldn't call it an intellectual faith, but suffice it to say, it blew the doors off my world. Mm. And I realized, oh my goodness, there's so much of Christianity I've been missing. There's so much of life I've been missing. And I decided there and then that I was going to be a Catholic. It had been sort of bouncing around in the back of my head for a few weeks at that point. Uh, but no, that did it. And it's been all downhill since then. Yeah. Uh, I like well, how I said downhill. Yeah. That was intentional. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I like to say that, you know, before I met Josh, uh, I didn't even know what the Bible was. It was all just Summa, you know? We're editing that out. 
No, totally keeping it in. Uh, we Catholics can do a better job at giving <laughs> the scripture. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. yeah, definitely. Yeah. I was speaking with a, a Capuchin friend of mine, very, very good friends with him, a, a couple of weeks ago, and I happened to remark that my parents they spend an hour or so each each morning studying the Bible, looking mm. some of the original languages, and how they read through the Bible every year, and then they study parts of the Bible on top of that. And he was just blown away. And I mean, this is a this is a guy who lives in a religious community, is surrounded with scripture, and he was just really, really stunned by that. Uh, but it's, it's rather unfortunate that we do not have, well, as a church as a whole, we do not have the biblical literacy that can be assumed of, say, the fathers. Right. But that's a whole other topic yeah. of discussion. Mm -hmm. uh, Father Mike Schmitz uh, actually mm -hmm. is doing a pretty good job, from what yeah. I can tell, at addressing that. I don't know if any of you guys have looked into the Bible yeah, in year. Yeah, I've have definitely, yeah. yeah, like last year I was definitely listening to his podcast a lot. Yeah, yeah. I love it. Yeah, Bible in a year, right? Yes, Bible yes. in a year. Yeah, one of my roommates is doing that. Yeah. Sounds fantastic. I regret not having... Done that. That'll be my uh, 2023 goal, but... I'm not 2022. It's like 26 days. I have, that's a lot to catch up on. Well, I mean, just listen to, like... I mean, what I would do is just listen to it on, like, maybe, like, you know, one and a half speed or something All like right. that. And then, like, maybe just listen to two or something like he that. He talks pretty fast yeah. as it is. I mean, uh, yeah, but, that is true. Yeah, he does talk fast, but... In, in my case, I... Because I'm a convert, I was attracted to the Coming Home Network... And they have a Bible and catechism in a year plan. So ah, I read a section from the Bible each day and a section from the catechism. And yes, I'm already familiar with you know that material. I've studied it before. But I think it's always good to go back to the basics and just to uh, sort of ingrain that manner of speaking and that manner of thinking uh, into one's, well, into the deepest recesses of one's mind. Great. Well, you know, we've got some... Uh, theological introductions out of the way. Let's dive into our first topic for today, uh, which is some controversy. And I can't believe a, a topic like this would be so controversial. It kind of shows uh, where our society is at right now. Uh, Pope Francis uh, daring to say that we should, uh, um, as this article says, uh, <clears throat> scolding those who choose pets but no children. Uh, Pope misses the rainforest for the trees. So recently, uh, Pope Francis said in, uh, was it a uh, address that he gave? Was it uh, a sermon or a homily? I think maybe it was, I'm not sure. I Was it was Wednesday audiences maybe? I don't, I don't know. Context. Um, uh, the uh, quote is, uh, many couples do not have children because they do not want to, or they just have one. But they have two dogs, two cats, and this denial of fatherhood or motherhood diminishes us. It takes away our humanity. A man or woman do not develop the sense of fatherhood or motherhood. They are lacking something, something fundamental, something important. Think about this, please. And, you know, Caitlin actually found this article from uh, Religion Dispatches, uh, and the title of the article, yeah, Scolding Those Who Choose Pets for, uh, But No Children, Pope Mrs. Rainforest for the Trees, uh, kind of implies that there's a lot of uh, pushback against this uh, idea that Pope Francis has, and I know, Caitlin, since you brought this to our attention, if you want to comment on this uh, scandalous, scandalous thing that he said, you know, we should focus on, you know, raising children and whatnot. I don't know, what do you think about all this? Yeah, I mean, I think definitely a lot of it stems from the fact that people don't understand what the Catholic, why the Catholic Church teaches what they do on, um, you know, contraception and, like, 
um, mm. things of that nature. And so I think a lot of people might hear the sound bites and say like, oh, raising pets is selfish. And like raising pets is actually not an inherently selfish act. It's, I mean, it's like pets are amazing. Yeah. I mean, we love, I'm sure we all love animals. Like, you know, yeah. St. Francis was an animal lover, you know, but yeah, but it's the selfishness comes in when you choose to have pets as opposed to children right. um, when you're a married couple. And I think another thing people don't understand is like one criticism I've seen get raised is um, basically when people are saying like, oh, how is a guy with no kids going to tell us how to live our life? Mm, that's but, a fun one. Yeah, but it's just like clearly he's addressing married couples, not singles, not people who are in religious life. I mean, he's the Pope. He's not getting married anytime soon he's talking about religious I and mean, he's talking about um married couples who are choosing to have pets as opposed to children yeah. um, and he's also not um talking about people who happen to have pets and just can't conceive he's talking about people who are actively choosing to not be open to life and have children and I think, if I might uh, break in, that the act of choice, the act of, of the will, is really the crux of the matter here. Uh, when the Pope is, says that, you know, we should... Uh, well, when the Pope points this out, he is talking about the order of love in our lives. Mm. Uh, having and taking care of pets is an act of love. It requires work. It requires investment, not only of time and money, but also a personal investment. Because if, if you have a pet that you love, part of you goes into that pet, as it were. The pet becomes a sort of extension of, of your personality in a way. And there's a deep, intimate relationship there. But the problem is that uh, that's not the sole purpose, that's not the sole end of the human person, that's not the chief end of the human person, that's not even probably extremely high up on the list of ends of the human person. So that if one is turning down the, the, the possibility of a relationship with one's children, of ordering and directing one's love to bring new life into the world and to raising life to experience well, the human community, to experience love, uh, and one's just turning away from that, for whatever reason, for the option of pets. I think there's, a, uh, th there's something that's fundamentally wrong with a society that countenances that on such a broad scale. Pets are not surrogates for children. Yeah. Pets are not surrogate children. They are pets. They are wonderful and good, and we should have them. Yeah. But they're not kids. Yeah. And when we yeah. confuse the two, and I'm not saying that anyone's... I'm not saying anyone's actually confusing. Oh my goodness! I, I think that my pet is my child. <laughs> I mean, there are there are some people who do this. Dog moms. Some <laughs> who do that. Uh, but I think that when people just want to to so limit their to, to so limit the size of their actual family, uh, their human family, so and simply replace the children they might have with uh, with animals. There's a deep deficiency there mm. that I think is uh, reflective of a serious, uh, a serious deficiency in the society of our time. Yeah, well, and you know, there's a couple of quotes from this article because you know, so far what we've talked about is uh, couples who more or less like uh, unintentionally or subconsciously replace 
children with uh, pets. But, you know, there are people out there who have a bit more of an intentional agenda, more or less, uh, with advancing an anthropology that uh, intrinsically, more or less, sees uh, humans as uh, almost cancerous to the planet and the environment. Uh, this quote stood out to me. Humans make up just 0.01% uh, of life on Earth. The Pope's implication that all couples should reproduce, uh, if they can, would only further overtax the planet for human-only needs. Our demand for ecological resources already annually exceeds what Earth can regenerate. I find that, uh, you know, incredibly ironic. I mean, the birth replacement rate in several countries is already abysmal. It's unsustainable. But for some people, that's good. Uh, we've lost sight of ourselves, as, uh, humanity, as the crown jewel of creation. Uh, the, you know, it's been replaced by uh, some people who either think... Uh, humanity adds nothing to the environment and um, people who worse think that we just take a toll on the environment and their uh, criticism there's truth in that but the solution isn't you know let's just uh, slowly erode the species like that I, I don't think that's a great approach either and you know I don't know what you think I think that specific that specific comment is Malthusian I think it refers to it's just not true that more, although it would, it would appear superficially uh, to be the case, but it's just not true that uh, a larger human population automatically results right. in you know, famine and depopulation and overpopulation and so on and so on yeah. and so forth. That's scientifically demonstrated to, to be false. Malthus is, mm. is discredited, and while I'm not an expert on his theory, I think that's public enough. And I also think that it, this uh, talk about humans forming already such a, such a large proportion, proportionally speaking, of uh, the world's ecosystem, that's unnecessarily restrictive. Mm -hmm. Because we are standing on the cusp of one of the largest technological revolutions in human history. Yeah. I hope that by the time I die, may it be at least several decades from now, I kind of enjoy living. Uh, I, I, it is entirely possible that there will be settlements on the moon, on other planets in our solar, solar Mars. system, mm. Mars, and, and I realize it's a bit far afield, so to speak, uh, from the, the precise topic at hand, but I think that it reflects an, an intrinsically despairing, an, intrins an intrinsically misanthropic uh, view of the human condition, yeah. mm. uh, which I could go yeah. on. And I, yeah, I think also just like relating to the thing on like overpopulation, I think it's yeah. also just important to, I think, note like, you know, like the overpopulation thing that gets pushed like is kind of a myth. Like it's just, it is. Yeah, it's oh, like totally. it's a myth. Yeah. And I mean, the problem that we really have is the distribution of resources. Yeah. Like, you know, you have people in the US who, you know, have way too much. Like, you know, we're like, you know, a, a huge part of the country is, you know, you know, over overweight and things. Yeah. And then you have other people in, you know, third world countries who can barely afford to eat rice. Yeah. And so, I mean, just having a better distribution of resources, yeah. I mean, that would help with a lot of these problems that I see getting pushed by, you know, oh, the world is overpopulated. Like, it's yeah. really not. And I think... You know, that sort of, um, you know, that sort of mentality and, like, language, I think, with overpopulation, I think it's been 
used to promote sort of like anti-life kind yes. of, um, you know, rhetoric, like, you know, like promoting things such as birth control and abortion. abortion yeah. And yeah, and, I, and it's even been used to even promote things such as eugenics as well, I think so. Yeah, well, yeah, I think it's interesting when you look at ecological disasters, you have to ask who's responsible for them. And for me, what comes to mind isn't, you know, the nice middle-class Catholic family that has a dozen kids. Uh, for me, yeah, I, th I, th I think of a lot of people in uh, Silicon Valley uh, who uh, don't have very many kids at all. I think of people who uh, replace children and the overbearing task of having children with money. I mean, people who have a lot of kids tend to be the most humble people I've ever met in my life. I mean, uh, one of the big pieces of advice um, the, uh, I, I, um, a speaker who came to our university a while ago who, um, you know, was decently wealthy but had a lot of children, we asked, how do you stay humble? And his answer was, have a lot of kids. And, and he wasn't joking. He said, you know, the more kids you have, it's going to keep you financially humble like that. So I, I don't think, you know, you can say that, you know, it's these families who are having lots of kids that are responsible for these massive ecological disasters. If anything, it's the families who have replaced the value of their children, the value of uh, human connection and relationships with profit and wealth in itself. And, uh, you know, in a uh, society like ours, uh, where, you know, companies care primarily about uh, profit over relationships, of course they're going to sell these larger families uh, products like fast food, um, you know, products that take a toll on the environment like that. So I don't think it's the large families that are uh, the primary, uh, primarily responsible for the, this ecological mess. I, I think it's um, you know people who've replaced the family with their own financial mm -hmm. interests. Um, yeah. I don't know if any of you guys want to add any more onto that before we. Yeah, I mean, I up. think also just um, a lot of I think. Part of the reason why I think this got this comment by Pope Francis got a lot of backlash is I think it, I think in some sense it kind of I think kind of pulls I I think people's consciences a little bit and I think a lot mm. of people like you know they see themselves as good people and I think in a lot of ways like you know people who don't have children I mean they do have the possibility to be good and be generous in perhaps other ways of but like just yeah like I think that um how do i say it i think that people are just kind of like you know like they're kind of taking that and seeing it as a personal attack when it's yeah. not really meant to be that way at all like take things personally a lot these yeah. days you know it's our story of our generation yeah. um you know if we uh josh if you want to add anything else or if we're ready to shift to oh, our next I, just one last sure. thing sure uh, to you know, we are a Catholic podcast, ostensibly. We have to you know make it a little more than window dressing. And I'm reminded uh, from a passage from Gaudium et Spes, the mm. document of the Second Vatican Council. Uh, I believe the last document that was published. If yeah. I remember my history correctly. Yeah, that's not right. I think it's section twenty-four. I'll have to verify this, but it was the favorite section of John Paul II that uh, the human person is made for self-gift. And we find our completion as persons in the total giving of ourselves. Mm. And the, in the vocation to celibacy, there, it, which is not necessarily restricted to priesthood in the religious life, uh, one can do that in a special way. But in the vocation to marriage, uh, it, it does not seem fitting 
that one should intentionally uh, give up the, the birth and the, the rearing of children just to have pets. And because a pet, as I said at the beginning of this section of the conversation, is not morally capable, uh, it is not morally fitting of being the object of the same human affection yeah. which, of which parents are by their very nature capable. It doesn't elicit the same biological response either. I mean, I, I love injecting you know, biology and chemistry as far as what human, humanity's natural ends are. And, uh, you know, especially for women, as far as the chemicals released during childbirth, uh, less so for men, but still has a huge impact. What raising a kid does to you as a person, mm -hmm. I, I mean, there's just so much uh, goodness that comes mm -hmm. out of the child raising yeah. process that to think that adopting a pet can elicit uh, those uh, same responses is biologically and chemically even incorrect at that level. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And I think also just um, to add, like, I think, I think a huge part of the reason I think why we're having this discussion is I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that society has lost the meaning of marriage. And yeah, yeah marriage is supposed to be both unitive and procreative. And yeah. so when you're taking away the procreative aspect, it's kind of sort of just sort of diminishing what the true meaning of marriage is supposed to be. So, yeah. 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 No, it's like uh, having kids. It, it's not just about you know benefiting the kid. It's a benefit to us as people. You know, it, it's such a huge part of us. Procreation in general. Um, it, it it really is uh, an intrinsic part of the, of what makes us human like that. And like I said, there's just so many benefits to having kids like that. Um, we're going to switch over to our next topic. We are going to focus on a current event now. Uh, we want to talk about both theological matters uh, in you know, just concepts, but also uh, some current events going on here. Uh, Taiwan watches Ukraine with concern as the United States divided over best response. So something that's uh, been buzzing around the news a lot is uh, the uh, potential invasion of Ukraine by uh, Russia. And uh, this will actually relate to some of our uh, more theological angles later in the podcast. Um, uh, Josh, um, I mean, I've been following this uh, somewhat decently. I mean, I guess no one really knows what's going to happen next. Um, I mean, I think you and I in private um, have different opinions over what we think is going to happen as far as uh, what Russia might end up doing. Do you have any bold predictions? as far as what's going to come next. Oh, because I'm, of course, the expert on this area. Yeah, you yeah, can of course. tell just by looking at me <laughs> how, how much foreign policy I read. Uh, well, uh, the, uh, the United States has, for the past, I, I shouldn't even say for the past 30 years, but since the fall of the Soviet Union, and really even since about 1989, when it became obvious that the Soviet Empire was, was collapsing, we have presided over a unipolar system. We are the leader of the free world, and as there is only a very small unfree world existing in such uh, terrible places as, say, North Korea, yeah. uh, you know, there, there's not much of a slave world to, to speak of. Uh, tyranny has been in retreat, as it, as it were. And we, for various reasons, blew our opportunity to secure our control of this of this new system, and then we 
uh, rather unwisely in retrospect, involved ourselves in various conflicts in the Middle East, which not only uh, drained us financially, I'd like to remind everyone that in 2001 there was a budget surplus, and then we went to war. Hmm. Uh, but we've drained ourselves not only financially, but also morally and uh, one could even say physically. We are no longer, the, and, and culturally, our people are not willing to fight a long war over Ukraine or over Taiwan. I'm not saying that means we can't or won't find yeah. a war, fight such a war. And I'm not even saying that applies to the question of should we fight such a war. I am simply saying that our heart is not in this mm. is in is not in this particular fight, and I think it calls for some great soul searching, especially in the years to come, and hopefully sooner than later, on our part. I would say, however. Our control, as I said a minute ago, 30 years ago, the world, there was one leader of the world, the United States of, Amer of America. Now, however, uh, our unipolar control of the world has been dissolving. Increasingly, China is uh, about as economically strong as the United States, and given their investments in Central, in Central Asia and in Africa, they are attempting to draw nations out of our, out of our sphere of influence. Uh, Russia is another question entirely because Russia has very many serious issues yeah. and is not nearly as threatening to us as I think China is and actively wants to be. But our antagonism toward both of these countries is only drawing them closer together. And yeah. the great concern, and it'll be very interesting to see how this pans out, is that Russia would launch an attack in Eastern Europe and China simultaneously launch an attack against Taiwan, in which case I think both of them would be successful. Mm -hmm. And I don't, and even if they did not launch these attacks at the same time, I think it would be very difficult for the United States to project force so far around the world, even in only one of these zones. I could go on for quite some yeah. time. Yeah, uh, I, I think we're in a pickle. I mean, we're in a huge pickle because we've sworn to protect these uh, countries. I mean, that's been part of the whole uh, ethos of why we've been engaged in so many conflicts abroad for so many decades now, is we keep telling these countries, yeah, we can protect you. And uh, time after time, uh, things don't work out so well, but especially now, if we don't come to the aid of countries like Ukraine or Taiwan, well, what does that say about us, right? I mean, I'm of the opinion that we need to start thinking of more creative ways to uh, hit back against countries like uh, China and Russia. I've always been in favor of uh, looking into uh, hitting them with trade. Because the fact of the matter is, uh, if, we, uh, if we don't hit a country like China with trade now, they'll only continue, in my opinion, to uh, monopolize uh, you know, manufacturing on their end. And eventually, you know, a as they become a dominant power, they'll um, I mean, they don't have to cut us out of the equation necessarily, but, you know, they'll, they'll be able to make things more expensive for us. They'll, we'll be at their mercy. So, you know, I've always been in favor of putting more restrictions on countries like that. Take our poison now, prices will go up in the short term, but uh, it'll hurt them just as much as it hurts us like that. But, you know, it, it's a tough ethical situation because, I mean, I don't know, part of me feels like at least some level of obligation to defend these poor countries uh, that we've, pledged support to, but 
I, it's not. I don't know if it's gonna end very well, Kate. I don't know what you think, Caitlin. Yeah, I don't know. I really don't know the best solution, honestly, for this. I mean, I have the tendency to. I feel like. I mean, if it's not something that's directly impacting us, I generally don't want to intervene. But I mean, again, I don't know the best solution on how we should approach this. Because I mean, of course, like you know, you do want to like kind of help like a situation if you're able to but like you know you don't want to over exhaust your resources well i think historically th there's a lot that could be said about this in historical perspective i think the case of the british empire is especially telling mm. in both world wars britain went to war uh, to a world war twice over belgium and poland uh, these were not the countries that it needed to defend at that at that moment bold, bold choice there but in, uh, in, in World War One, they, again, in World War One, the British became involved in what was essentially a German conflict with Russia that France really wanted to be in on uh, over the neutrality of a country that could not defend itself and that also was of, shall we say, limited strategic value to uh, the British Empire. Now, yes, there were concerns that the, that the Germans might, well, take Antwerp and make it a, a pistol pointed at the heart of England or something like that. But the fact is, the French had controlled Calais for centuries longer, and, you know, the French and the British had not always been on especially friendly terms. And in World War II, uh, you know, Hitler's Germany should have been dealt with much earlier. Everyone agrees that this is the case. But, in, and again, you can see this in the case of Belgium, Britain and France agreed to protect Poland a country which they could not protect, yeah. that was under threat by both Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union, which I'd like to point out was also on Nazi Germany's side at this point. The, the, Molotov, the Molotov Ribbentrop Pact was only dissolved in 1941. Uh, so, the, in, in both cases, Britain made promises, and you could also say this for France, that it couldn't keep and it paid dearly for not being able to keep those those promises. And I think in both cases, uh, both both spheres of aggression, uh, in, in Ukraine and in Taiwan and the South and East China Sea, we're looking at two areas that we might have interest in protecting, but to which we cannot project power. Yeah. This was a major concern of the British Empire in the years leading up to World War One, because the British had a rule they would maintain twice as many vessels in their surface fleet as the next largest navy. And Germany realized there's no way we can beat the British, you know, it, there's no way we can get a materially more significant navy than the British, you know, the British fleet. But what the Germans decided to do, and this was under Admiral von Tirpitz, was to build two-thirds as many vessels as the British had but keep them almost all located in the North Sea. Uh, so very, very short distance from the, the British Isles. And the problem is the British Navy had to defend this global empire, uh, which was very, very inconvenient. And so the British could not concentrate force sufficiently uh, to deal with, with the, a, a potential German threat. Now, eventually, in the course of World War I, it didn't work out quite that way. But I think in the present situation, if we assume a massive Russian invasion, 175,000 soldiers in Ukraine, uh, and if we assume a, a Chinese invasion of Taiwan, which of course would be very substantial, uh, 
in, in its own right, I don't see how the United States projects sufficient force uh, with that. Because, again, we have to remember, nuclear weapons exist now. They didn't exist in World War One. They didn't exist until the very end of World War Two. And now there's the risk of, es of escalation. And if the United States, say, loses a carrier fleet, which is a legitimate possibility given the Chinese, given what weapons the Chinese government possesses now, and given Russia's nuclear doctrine, we would be fa we would be would be faced with massive casualties, the decisive defeat of any attempted intervention on our part, and the possibility. Well, do we escalate this into a nuclear conflict, and where does that go, and what what sort of face are we allowed to to lose or to save in this con in this conflict? All I'm saying is. We all live in Washington, D.C. <laughs> We're probably going to die. <laughs> yeah, that, 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 yeah. That's on the table. Well, you know, a, part, a huge part of just war in the Catholic tradition is this idea of proportionality. You know, is it really, is that conflict uh, going to cause more harm than good in the long term to us? And I think, Josh, you've made an excellent case uh, why it's not worth, you know, that escalation. And, you know, like we've both mentioned uh, the last few uh, times we've tried to defend anyone against a larger uh, power have been uh, largely unsuccessful. Uh, like I said, I, I still think that uh, there's also an element of humility into this. It's a hard pill to swallow that a power that's uh, ideologically different, like China or Russia, could uh, be, you know, project strength or uh, conquer countries, uh, but, you, you know, I, I think there's a humility in acknowledging we just can't physically be the world police, and that might not be the most effective strategy to bring these empires down. I, I, mean, I think Josh briefly mentioned that the Russian government, uh, as much as it likes to project itself, uh, the Russian economy not really, uh, you know, uh, doesn't really have much firepower there. China has immense issues with their uh, economy, both uh, domestically, they've run into problems with their banks, their currency manipulation, they have cultural issues, their middle classes inhibiting them from, uh, you know, retaining low manufacturing costs. Uh, these are two countries where if we really do believe that ideologically they're built on a foundation of straw, they're going to collapse within themselves whether or not we go to war with them in the long run. And there's ways we can accelerate that through diplomacy and through trade, but sending a bunch of people to go fight and die in Ukraine not only hurts our own people, it, it, it'll hurt the poor Ukrainians too, uh, you know, uh, above anything else. So I, I certainly agree that, you know, even if there is an invasion, there's gotta be other tactics that we can use uh, but I, we have to humbly admit that just because other countries use military to get what they want doesn't mean that we should and doesn't mean that uh, they won't collapse in the, under their own weight. Let, let them fly into the sun by themselves. I'm convinced that within a couple decades, China, especially after Xi Jinping dies, because eventually he'll have to, um, the Chinese uh, you know, system will collapse and Russia is also unsustainable, but, uh, Caitlin, yeah, yeah, I mean, I think that, um, I mean, again, I don't know what the best solution is, but I think that whatever we do, I feel like it should be rooted in, I think, like, I think just 
sort of the value of, you know, protecting human life. And I think that is very important. And But also, like, you know, trying to do what's also most effective. So, like, trying to find that sort of balance. And I think, I mean, I'm sure people who are more well-versed in foreign policy and, you know, tactics on how we should address this issue. I'm sure we probably know more on, but I think like, yeah, I think that's just what we need to do. Well, I think we should give the viewers something positive uh, because it's not my perspective that we should just wash our hands of the situation yeah. in either theater. Yeah. And I think the key diplomatic issue here is driving apart Russia and China. Russia and China mm. are not natural natural friends. Right. Russia wants to uh, Russia wants parity with China. Russia wants a new great power system in which it has an equal seat at the table with say the United States with say China. And China's perfectly willing to allow the Russians to do their own thing in Eastern Europe so long as they are subordinate uh, to Chinese interests. So while there is the possibility for an alliance, that alliance will be our own fault. And uh, let me be clear, I don't sympathize with either of these, with either of these nations. Mm -hmm. They are, uh, one might say, thugocracies. <laughs> uh, but I, I certainly sympathize with China a great deal less uh, than I sympathize uh -huh. uh, with, with, Ru with Russia. Now, uh, so that, that's something to keep in mind in, in the first place. Uh, I think with regard to Taiwan, we have consistently put off uh, fortifying Taiwan uh, sufficiently against potential Chinese invasion. Uh, there are the, the Aegis missile defense system, which is used by uh, many of our many of the United States warships, is a highly uh, advanced uh, missile defense system. Should be provided in its Aegis ashore configuration to Taiwan and in great quantity, so that they could withstand perhaps an initial Chinese mis missile barrage. Uh, there is the uh, nuclear option, and I mean that literally, yeah. that the United States simply uh, transfers uh, nuclear weapons to Taiwan and says, guess what, if you hit Taiwan, we're not going to nuke China. You know, that, 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 that wouldn't probably be a war crime, and also that uh, wouldn't really do anything substantial. But if you send a, an invasion fleet, we will use nuclear force to... Uh, to deal with it. And of course that brings up the fact that the United States needs ballistic missile defense, uh, which we still do not co comprehensively have. In Ukraine, if I could just say a few words on that, this is a worse issue because there does happen to be a body of water between mainland China and Taiwan, and that usually makes an invasion a little harder. Mm. Uh, there's a reason why uh, Britain has not been successfully invaded in about thousand years unless you want to call the the unless you want to deal with the glorious revolution of 1688 but that's something else <laughs> uh, it, and ukraine is much harder we have to see what it depends on what putin wants and on how much uh, material and men he's willing to expend to get what he wants yeah. i think because there is a substantial russian-speaking population of ukraine in the east and along the black sea coast it may have been prudent, and again, I don't know how much time there is left for this, uh, to establish a pro-Russian state in that area and to let Western Ukraine sort of with retrench into a European identity. But I do think that more concessions 
have to be made by sheer virtue of the fact that Russia can project power deep into Ukraine uh, without having to cross uh, any body of water. Yeah. Well, I think, the, I mean, you mentioned the topic of nuclear weapons, and I think that might actually be an excellent segue into our next uh, topic on uh, uh, your defense of uh, non-strategic uh, nuclear weapons. Uh, we're referring to an article by Mr. Josh Orsi himself. There I am. Yeah? There I am. Right there. I, I was there that day. Yeah, that's right. That's uh, right next to, you're the guy uh, to the uh, right of uh, no, Kennedy, was, right? Oh, that's Kennedy. you. Oh, that's you. So, yeah, I, I knew he's still alive. The conspiracy theories were right. So I wasn't going for that, and also that was Elvis. Uh, <laughs> both but, of them. They're both living together uh, with uh, Hitler in some uh, mountain in the middle of South America or something like that, you know? Well... We're in that part of Yeah, no, we're not. <laughs> <laughs> well, Welcome to InfoWars. I, I need to conceal my face at this point. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, defense of non-strategic nuclear weapons. Uh, for the audience, Josh, what does that mean? What, what does that mean? Well, I, I, before, just before I define this, I want to point out that when I texted the article to my old spiritual director, Monsignor King, who's a vice rector of Mount St. Mary's Seminary, he happened to mention, you know, I wrote a paper on non, the ethics of non-strategic nuclear warfare back in, I forget if it was seminary, it was some time ago, but he's not sure if he still has it. And I asked him, well, what were your conclusions? As in, do you share my conclusions or not? And he never got back to me. So, you know, I don't think he saw the message, but... So you're just calling him out right here on a podcast? I am. He had, Monsignor, you have to get back to me. Let's have a debate. I, I, Let's I, have him I, on the podcast. Oh, I'm sure he would do it. <laughs> but if he had the time. Anyhow, non-strategic nuclear warfare. Uh, the use of nuclear weapons in tactical, that is, battlefield situations. So not against cities, not against uh, civilian installations, uh, but against armies and against fleets. So these nuclear weapons would be smaller. They would be obviously less power, still extremely powerful, but uh, nonetheless less powerful than their city-destroying counterparts, and they would be used directly against enemy formations. Uh, to give an example of, a, co a contemporary example of tactical nuclear warfare, which had, of course has not been, uh, thank God, has not ever been put into <laughs> practice, yeah. uh, the Russian military doctrine and it's changed within the last 20 years. I, it's in the article. I, it might be in the article. At, at any rate, I'm not sure how much it has changed. But it was Russian military doctrine at about 20 years ago uh, to de-escalate a conflict through the deployment of nuclear weapons. And usually that's the opposite of what we think. We think when, when you nuke somebody, you know, that's, uh, that, that's a cause for escalation, so it's a, it's a big risk, but Russia thinks it can de-escalate a conflict by using tactical nuclear weapons. Mm. Basically, if Russia were to be invaded or attacked with overwhelming conventional force, Russia would respond by deploying one or several uh, tactical nuclear weapons, which would obliterate any uh, attacking enemy formation. And so, at that point, the enemy in this conflict uh, would be faced with the choice of, well, do we try to invade Russia again with massive conventional force, only to see it get literally wiped out with nuclear fire? Or do we call it a day? Or do we respond with massive retaliation, at which Russia will probably deploy, I don't know, over 6,000 nuclear warheads to destroy every city uh, in, in the country? So, 
you know, Russia does have a, a case there, the possibility of deflecting a major conventional assault through the use of tactical nuclear, nuclear weapons. And I write on the, on the possible ethics of such a move. Yeah. I think I apply it in one case to a potential Chinese invasion of Taiwan. Let's see, you know, how, oh, look at that. how you're Christian a, you're I am. You're a prophet. Uh, yeah. But uh, because China is possibly outfitting some of its carrier killer missiles, which we can't shoot down, by the way, or it's, it, 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 it's, it's bad. It's really bad for us. Uh, but they're possibly outfitting them with nuclear warheads, in which case we could lose a carrier fleet to a Chinese nuclear warhead, which wouldn't be a war crime. At least as far as I know, that would not be a war crime. I mean, they would they would kill a lot of people, but they could very quickly take out a potential U.S. Uh, military uh, threat to an invasion of Taiwan. So those are some examples. Well, found it. Yeah, uh, in my best Josh voice, in both cases, the proposal to use atomic weapons is specifically directed toward military forces. Neither foresees the universal nuclear holocaust predicted by so many during the Cold War. Assume the likelier case of the two. China launches a hypersonic nuclear missile at an aircraft carrier in the East China Sea. Sailing to the aid of uh, Taiwan, the most inevitable outcome would be the swift destruction of the entire carrier strike group, and all of or most of the 8,000 lives in it, and multiple times the magnitude of 9-11, but unlike 9-11, an act in war solely directed at a military target. Yeah, you didn't have the cadence there. Well, no, no, no. that's like that's like your high voice, you know. I, I, when I try to do your voice, I can only no, you, 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 you've got a serious like. Why is the camera face. on me for this? <laughs> it's got a great voice for it. That's a radio announcer like that, but no, some amazing uh, foresight there. Oh, Kevin, what do you think of all this? You know, with the non-strategic uh, nuclear. Would you would you launch a would you launch a nuke, Caitlin? Would you? Uh... Yeah, no. Um, I yeah, nuclear weapons just seem kind of scary. You know, they could do a lot of damage. I'm generally, I would say, I'm not a fan. I, nuclear war sounds scary. Yeah, I don't know. How would you deal with it? Because uh, a couple of years ago, I actually attended a conference at the Vatican on the topic of uh, nuclear weapons. Uh, Pope Francis actually issued a uh, declaration there condemning the, the use of nuclear weapons and uh, encouraging uh, countries to uh, slowly abandon them, uh, just a you know, mutual abandonment of nuclear weapons. Now this wasn't a magisterial statement. No, no, no it, was a, yeah, it was a United Nations uh, sanctioned event hosted at the Vatican and he was just uh, speaking. Um, and you know, interestingly enough, I, I asked the question, because uh, we had a, there was a panel of uh, Nobel Prize laureates and United Nations representatives there, and I asked the question of, okay, you know, ideally speaking, let's say we, um, you know, do accomplish this, uh, everyone gets rid of the nuclear weapons, and then some rogue nation uh, just decides they're going to restart their program, what do we do then, right? And the answer I received was uh, basically, how dare you, you know, assume that this is idealistic or anything like that. It was a total non-answer that they gave me. As, as much as I respect the agenda to denuclearize the world, because what is it? We have enough nukes to blow up the world, not, not collectively, 
oh, we have the, enough nukes to blow up the world six times over or some estimation like that. Um, I, I mean, it's true. Like, uh, how are we going to trust that other nations are going to get rid of theirs and, you know, permanently like that? I mean, that, that, that's a tough one right there, so. Well, I think there's also a temptation, owing to the use of nuclear, the, the two times that nuclear weapons were used in war, there is this uh, common understanding of them as this uniquely evil weapon. And I don't want to dispute that. I, I'm not commenting on whether or not that's true or f that is true or false, whether or not they are a uniquely evil weapon. But the fact is, conventional weaponry is capable of, of absolutely horrendous uh, use in warfare. Uh, how many hundreds of thousands of people died in the firebombing of Tokyo or right. yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, the, the accounts of what just the heat of the fire did to people who survived and how it literally melted those who died. I mean, I, I was looking at some eyewitness accounts of this. It's, it's just absolutely, absolutely horrifying. And that was done using perfectly conventional weaponry. Uh, one of the, you know, when, when uh, in the 19th century, and I think again in the early 20th century, when there were these debates over whether or not uh, European nations should use poison gas, uh, the, one of the arguments for poison gas, I'm not defending poison gas here, but one of the arguments for poison gas was, how on earth is this worse than shrapnel, which can literally tear apart a human body with, with flaming chunks of metal? As opposed to just, you know, using poison gas to, to kill someone. Or I, I think Winston Churchill, there's his line when he was talking about the use of tear gas against Kurdish rebels. And he's usually falsely understood to have, to have wanted to actually use poison gas as opposed to tear gas on them. But when he was saying, how on earth is, that more, is it more ethical to use, you know, high-powered explosives as opposed to a, a gas that will make their eyes water? And so I, I think that... You know, we do regard certain weapons, as, such as chemical weapons, as being beyond the pale of what civilized nations can use in combat. And historically, we've regarded uh, nuclear weapons as in the same category, again, because of the, the sheer horror of how they were first employed. And at the same time, if we got rid of all nuclear weapons, there is the possibility that... I mean, for one thing, we, we still have the technology, and I'm pretty sure in the case of a major war, you know, it's like the scene of the Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, when Denethor says, you know, I will never, I will never use the ring, but I will put it away, mm, safe. Yeah. And if there's ever the need of it, I will, I will, I will, I'm not saying I'll do this, but, you know, I will, I will take it out, and I will, I will use it. Yeah. Uh, but, at any rate, if nuclear weapons didn't exist, there also is the possibility that there will be many more conventional wars among, uh, am among the great powers. For example, let's assume that neither China nor Russia nor the United States had nuclear weapons at this moment. That technology had just never been discovered. I can probably guarantee you that Taiwan would be officially a part of the People's Republic, would be actually a part of the People's Republic of China at this moment. And I can also probably tell you that Putin would not be waiting to invade Ukraine. Mm -hmm. The only reason that those conflicts have not uh, gone over the edge yet is simply because we do possess nuclear weapons, and there right. is the, there is in fact the possibility that we would use them. Now, of course, my paper dealt with uh, the tactical employment of nuclear weapons, which I think could 
do, if that were a live possibility, uh, not saying I would actually use them, but if that were a live possibility, if they were integrated into the structure of our, of our military, uh, then more fully, I, I do think it would be a deterrent uh, to conflict, or at least a way that we could end conflicts uh, much, much uh, sooner. But uh, that's something else. Caitlin, mm. do you have any other thoughts on the matter? I know that military strategy isn't necessarily, uh, yeah, let me say it kind of scares you more or less. Like yeah, that, I just, yeah, I just don't like the idea of just, yeah, I mean, I hope that, like, we could find a way to, like, sort of denuclearize, like, these countries, but I don't know how realistic or possible right. that is, but uh, nuclear war just does not sound ideal. Yeah, yeah, well, let's uh, switch over to our last topic, uh, more on the theological side. Uh, no salvation outside the church and evangelization. Uh, that's an article I actually wrote, but Caitlin actually uh, picked it as far as, you know, topics that she thought would be interesting. I'm honored that you brought that one mm -hmm. up. It's a topic near and dear to me because it's the subject of my master's thesis, actually, is uh, reconciling the uh, traditional formulas of uh, no salvation outside the church that condemn, uh, you know, pagans, uh, heretics, schismatics, Jews, uh, reconciling that with Vatican II, which acknowledges the possibility of salvation uh, for people who uh, are not baptized Catholic in their earthly lives. Um, I know I wrote the article, but Caitlin, if you could talk about what interests you about the topic or what you find fascinating about this yeah, so I mean, I find it interesting that, like, it's still possible for non-Christians or the non-baptized to be saved, um, and I think this is just kind of just an area I'm still trying to, like, understand yeah. more fully, um, yeah, and so, like, the idea that, you know, even non, like, non-Christians can still, in a sense, be saved through Christ, yeah. um, yeah, because it's not, like, um, Vatican II isn't trying to say, like, isn't trying to reject, like, the need for Christ for our salvation because, like, yeah, because Christ died literally for our salvation and, yeah, yeah for the salvation of all people. And so it's kind of to give that hope for all people's salvation. But I think, yeah, the area that I'm still a bit um, trying to understand is, I guess, sort of like, how does that translate, um, and maybe you could answer this, yeah, like, sure. yeah, like, into, I would say, the, like, the likelihood of how, like, a Christian gets saved versus a non-Christian. Yeah, and I think, I, I think it's Agentes, the Vatican document, Vatican II document that was focused on missionary activity, and uh, Vatican II, and people always forget that Vatican II uh, encourages and uh, renews the church's interest in missionary activity, the necessity of it. Uh, I mean, the basic line of thought anymore is that although it's possible for people to be saved who haven't been baptized in this life, it's tremendously more difficult than someone who's born into the environment that a uh, Roman uh, or, or is raised or is uh, you know, integrated or baptized into the uh, Christian faith like that. And, you, you know, people people find issue with uh, Vatican II, you know, claiming that it contradicts earlier teaching that says if you're not, you know, inside the church, then you're damned to hell for all eternity. And, you know, the Council of Florence specifically calls out the group's uh, pagans uh, in reference to Muslims, uh, Jews, heretics, schismatics, 
etc. Um, because the underlying assumptions at the time were uh, in a that the uh, gospel had been preached to the ends of the earth. Uh, people don't, a lot of people don't know this, but the earliest church fathers, uh, most of them agreed that the uh, uh, Jewish prophets and Greek philosophers before Christ were within the church. That the church wasn't uh, established uh, by Christ's incarnation. That uh, all the way back from, I believe Augustine uh, recognizes uh, um, Abel as the uh, first person to fall within the confines of the church like that, of all people, that the prophets were inside the church, and then uh, Justin Martyr argues that the Greek philosophers like Socrates uh, were within the confines of the church. But they also agreed that once the gospel message is introduced to the world, a rejection of it is a rejection of all that is good and holy and true. So by the time you reach the height of Christendom, by the time Christianity has spread throughout all of Europe and uh, the church finds its, uh, the kingdoms of uh, Christianity find themselves at war with the kingdoms of Islam, the assumption is that these horrible, terrible pagans have rejected everything that is good and true about the Christian church and therefore they are condemned for eternity. But eventually when Christendom falls, and we uh, lose control of a Christian uh, Europe, uh, that assumption is uh, no longer there, because how can you expect people to uh, have uh, behaved or uh, believed uh, in uh, Christianity in a fundamentally non-Christian world? So, in many ways, the time we exist in today is more similar to that of the, patri of the uh, patriarchs of the Church of the Patristics, uh, we're, uh, you know, re religiously speaking, our culture is more similar to uh, Roman society where the gospel hasn't been preached to the ends of the earth. So there's leeway within that. There's invincible ignorance for that. But just because people, you know, aren't aware of the gospel doesn't mean an automatic ticket to heaven. Evangelization is so key because it's difficult, some theologians will argue, for non-Christians to arrive at these ideas of Christian virtue um, in uh, non-Christian communities and non-Christian societies. So I don't know if that answers anything, but that's basically it, is that, you know, if, um, you know, it, it, uh, you know, Karl Rahner likes to uh, look at religion in terms of expanding one's, uh, he calls it transcendental horizon, you know, this capacity more or less to get in touch with God, spirituality, um, and for him, anyone out there, regardless of culture and religion, can have a relationship with God. And I totally agree with him there. But Christianity expands that horizon massively. It allows us to engage with God on a level that uh, is incredibly difficult to attain within any other religion. And of course, the expansion of that horizon in itself is a Christian property. They just don't know it, right? All goodness, it sounds arrogant to people in a pluralistic society, but all goodness that we see in Muslims or Jewish faiths actually properly belongs uh, to the church, to the Holy Roman Catholic Church like that. Uh, they're just not aware of it. But yeah, the sacraments uh, that the Catholic Church provides are the ultimate ways to expand one's horizon so that they can engage with God better. So... Yeah, I, you know, I don't know if that yeah. yeah, and yeah. I think it's also just important to recognize, like, the role of sacramental grace. Like, you know, the graces yeah. you receive from baptism and uh, the other sacraments um, 
you know, how that helps a person be more ordered to follow what is good. And so I guess like the argument might be like, you know, like people who aren't Christian, they don't have those sacraments. So it's harder for them to yeah. receive those graces. Like, yeah. um, and you know, so, and I think also just, um, commenting on, um, what is it that, um, yeah, it's still possible for people who are non-Christian to be baptized, but there also needs to be the understanding that, like, you know, it's through, like, their invincible ignorance and that they need to be also following their conscience and also just, like, following God in the best way that they know how, like, to the best of their ability. And if someone is, say, let's just say they have had, you know the opportunity to hear the gospel, but they're just actively rejecting it, like, that's going to be, like, that's not... Yeah, you know, and, and, and I'll have more comment, and a lot of Josh uh, chime in here. Um, people forget that with the traditional uh, proclamations of this doctrine, such as Florence, which is very harsh, very harsh, it even says, even if you die in the name of Christ, uh, unless you are baptized in this life, you will surely, you know... Uh, be sent to the fires. It has to. It has to mean unless you are, if you are a heretic who dies in the name of Christ. Right. Yeah. They accept baptism of blood. Uh, yeah. No, Florence rejects it. Wait, um, really? Florence really? rejects it. Okay. Florence rejects it. Um, I have the text here. Um, uh, da, da da da. Let's see here. Uh, for. Okay, and that the unity of the ecclesial body is so strong that only those remaining in it are the sacraments of the church or benefit of salvation, and do fastings, almsgiving, and other functions of piety and exercises of Christian service produce eternal award, and that no one, whatever almsgiving he has practiced, even if he has shed blood for the name of Christ, can be saved unless he has remained in the bosom and unity of the Catholic that's, Church. It, that's remained in the bosom and unity, because Amber, I mean, in Ambrose's funeral homily for, oh, dread, I can't remember the name of the emperor, but the Roman emperor at that time was a catechumen, and had died without baptism, yeah. and Ambrose says, well, no, he, he did he not receive what he desired? Yeah. And uh, my understanding is that baptism, some form of baptism of desire has been recognized since the 4th century. Well, so I was going to say, so Florence is operating under the assumption that as of that proclamation, the gospel has successfully reached the ends of the earth and any rejection of it. Well, yes, yes, but, I'm, yeah. but Florence can't possibly be saying that, a, that the poor catechumen who dies without having received baptism... Uh, for whatever reason, uh, it, it automatically goes to hell. It, 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 by saying remaining in the bosom, I, that's a reference to, to heresy or, or, or schism with right. the church. But, you know, it also does explicitly say that if you're not in unity with the church, you will be... Now, okay, I mean, this is a very important point, though, because as Josh has said, even preceding Florence, there were qualifying statements. You know, there were other doctrines that were recognized by the church I mean, this was around the time, roughly, of Thomas Aquinas when he did outline the origins of this notion of invincible ignorance. Um, no theologian at Florence or around that time would have ever denied that God can supersede his own sacraments. That has been something that has been recognized almost from the beginnings of the Church, is that God holds primacy over the sacraments ultimately. And, I mean, Aquinas even acknowledges that he can operate beyond uh, the Church's 
manifestations of them. I always like to use the image that even if someone isn't baptized into the church properly at their moment of death, there's this, many theologians come, believe that at the moment of death there is more or less this final chance to convert at your deathbed in that transitory uh, period between uh, your earthly life and your heavenly one. So, you know, effectively at your hour of death, you make that final decision whether or not you are, you accept uh, Christ and, you know, by extension, you are in the bosom and unity of the church. And yet we can never forget that that is merely a theological opinion, which is an opinion. And one cannot rest on opinions uh, to to form a total theology. Now, I like that opinion, right. and I yeah, myself yeah. am really disposed to it, but again, yeah. it's opinion. Well, and that's why, you know, preaching is so important. We can't just assume that at the hour of someone's yeah. death, they're going to, you know, convert mm -hmm. like that. Because yeah. it is, you know, a, a doctrinally, whether it's a universal magisterium or has been proclaimed officially at some point, this notion that God can act beyond the manifestations of his sacraments. That's always been there. And if you'd asked anyone at Florence uh, whether God would ever, uh, I mean, it's in the dogmas of the church that God would never unjustly condemn someone to hell. So, you know, it is important to look at the context of what was going on when Florence was written. More importantly, why it was written, too. Uh, interesting point, and uh, I didn't want to go into this much detail, but I think it's actually really important. So. The purpose of the Council of Florence was to foster unity between the Western and Eastern churches. And it actually claimed to have achieved that. This document, is, the document that outlines no salvation outside the church is called Cantate Domino. And it was written um, by a monk and a group of people on behalf of the Pope at the time. And it was presented to the East as a creed of sorts. Like, this is what we believe. It was not dogmatically defining that Jews, pagans, heretics, etc. are burning in hell. When you look at a conciliar text, it's very clear when, a church, when the church is making a dogmatic pronouncement, it will use the language of anathema. It will say, you know, those who believe this will, are separated from the church or anathematized. It doesn't use that language here because the purpose of the document isn't to define a new doctrine. The purpose of the document is to foster unity with Eastern churches, which, uh, interestingly enough, it, it succeeded materially. The East signed uh, off on this, and in a few years it totally collapsed. But uh, to give you know, a perspective of the doctrinal weight of uh, no salvation outside the church in Florence, less than 100 years later, um, with the discovery, well, you know, quote, discovery of the New World, theologians were already openly, uh, you know, uh, proclaiming invincible ignorance as a means of salvation for people not in the church, knowing fully well what Florence meant. I mean, so the context of in which a, a conciliar document is written is important. Not all documents, not all statements in conciliar documents carry that same amount of weight. And that's very important because, like I said, um, the intent of the authors of the document is what matters most. And clearly, and there's many books you can read on this, the intent at Florence was not to define that Muslims and Jews and heretics are burning in hell forever. Their intent was to foster unity, and it used a creedal statement to achieve that. So there's many theologians, myself included, that believe this doesn't carry any dogmatic weight 
properly as far as that condemnation goes. And intent also is not uh, is not the same. Correct me if I'm wrong. As the actual beliefs and opinions right. of those writing the document. So, for example, the Council of Trent, when it was defining the relationship uh, for the church between scripture and tradition. Most of the theologians there, and this was the majority opinion up until about the middle of the 20th century or so, uh, was that there are two sources of revelation. Uh, Revelation is partly in Scripture and partly in these anonymous oral traditions that come from the apostles, so I guess they're not anonymous, but they were secretly passed down uh, throughout the ages. And, for example, the, the... the classic one would be, well, the Assumption of Mary. That's an, an, an oral tradition that came from somewhere and, you know, from the very beginning of the church, more or less. And so most of, the, most of those uh, theologians at, and bishops, I should say, at the Council of Trent believed in this idea of partim partim, to use the Latin, partly in scripture, partly in tradition. And yet they did not use that terminology, but rather et, et, both and in Latin. And it was a weaker uh, statement, which still allowed for an interpretation, which some of the the theologians held, uh, that no, Scripture is materially sufficient, uh, whereas the whole of Scripture, we have the Bible and nothing but the Bible, but it's the whole Bible, the Bible as interpreted by the Church. And this is ultimately the understanding to which uh, the Second Vatican Council came in De Verbum. And so there you have a distinction between the intent of the authors of the Council of Trent, which, to cast, which was to cast a fairly broad net uh, for ecclesiastical unity, and their yeah. personal beliefs that, no, it, it is partly in Scripture and partly in tradition. Yeah, yeah no, I, I, I totally agree there, and I, I think the most important thing, I mean, conciliar fundamentalism is a huge issue in among young theologians I speak with who will just take a conciliar statement totally out of context and try to interpret it literally according to what they say, uh, for me, the more, um, you know, I, I'm a huge believer in, you know, the, the style of negative theology, that theological statements are always uh, denying something more or less, a, a quality about God to say that one God is one, for example, uh, isn't to say that God is one in the way we understand one. It's to deny all other concepts of multiplicity, that God is not many, right? And for me, the most important part of a conciliar statement is looking at what is it reacting against. And in the case of no salvation here, it's reacting against uh, not only this disunity between the East and the West, but it's also reacting against these wars that are happening right now between the terrible pagans and the uh, Christians right there. It's trying to convince Christians to stay within the confines of the church and, you know, more or less, uh, you know, this document's been used to uh, also um, you know, suggest that conversion is indeed important like that. So as Josh was saying about Trent, you know, a lot of that, the language in Trent, which tends to be very harsh, and uh, a lot of statements in Trent um, aren't strictly historically accurate all, all the time, uh, you know, the purpose is to uh, retain unity to the Roman Catholic Church. So you always have to be looking at why did did they write it? Why did they write it like this? And then and only then can you really uncover the meaning of uh, what this uh, document is trying to say. And it's almost always trying to say that this isn't the way things are. Um, You know, like I said, I like that negative theology 
Um, I don't know, Josh, do you have any com other comment on, you know, the no salvation issue particularly? Or? Well, I, I like how you were talking about negative theology. Yeah. And yet I was about to, I was going to say at the very beginning how the reformulation of the doctrine in Vatican II was a positive reformulation. And right. yet at the same time you can see this, this sort of denial of what salvation is not. Salvation is not anything that occurs apart from Christ. Right. Ergo, salvation occurs solely through Christ. And there, if no one is saved outside the church, and the church is the body of Christ, then all those who are saved, and the church is never strictly, as it were, defined who precisely is inside and outside the church, uh, but if everyone is saved in the church, and there's no one saved outside the church, and the church is the body of Christ, then uh, everyone who is saved is saved through Christ. And that was a beautiful yeah. uh, image of the Second Vatican Council. That must be held uh, complementarily uh, with this older understanding of extra ecclesium nulla salus. Uh, because, again, the Second Vatican Council did not suddenly adopt this... Uh, well, how, how would you say this universalistic tendency? Yeah, no. yeah. Uh, and it's pretty clear in Lumen Gentium, and then of course the whole point of agentes and unitatis redintegratio and nostra etate uh, is respecting other religions and praising mm -hmm. them and praising uh, other Christian denominations and ecclesial communities and churches, and yet at the same time is calling for a deeper unity. And of course, there's a lot that could be said, said about the phrasing of the Second Vatican Council there and yeah. how it's worked out in practice, but I, I do think yeah. this ties yeah. into your... Good. Yeah. yeah, and so I guess like, yeah, the other thing I'm also just trying to, I guess, more fully understand is the role of evangelization towards people of other faiths. And because, it, uh, of course, like, you know, we're not, we want to try to avoid the universalistic tendency to just be like, oh, well, they have the chance of salvation, like, let them, you know, just be the best whatever religion yeah. they are, just like, let, just, you know, leave them be. I mean, you know, obviously still respecting their right to practice, but, you know, just, but also having that um, necessity of the role of evangelization and bringing, um, Christ and the true gospel to these people because um, of course and then also just also recognizing you know if someone um, you know does you know have the opportunity to know the truth of Christ and then is actively rejecting it like you know for the sake of maybe you know to be like you know another religion then that's going to impact you know their chances of salvation and it's important to also just recognize you know that um you know i guess sort of the role of like you know you know how salvation works out for you know people of other faiths you know a lot of it is just you know like if they're raised in that community and don't have or like you don't have the opportunity to fully understand what the truth of Christianity is. Yeah, and I like that. Um, so one topic, and it'll touch on this, and this will be the last thing I have to add about this. Uh, like I said, this is a, a huge master's thesis I'm writing on this topic. Uh, reception of a doctrine is incredibly important to how it's understood. Uh, uh, famously or infamously, uh, the uh, doctrine of uh, uh, the uh, 
doctrines against usury, um, for example, almost immediately after, I can't recall which pope was it who uh, signed off against uh, condemning usury. Benedict XIV. Yeah, almost immediately after that, given all the financial crises that were about to take hold, groups of cardinals and theologians did everything in their power to craft magisterial documents that circumvented or, um, you know, almost uh, effectively nullified the Holy Father's statements. And that's significant, that the Church ended up actually, you know, accepting those into its magisterial tradition. With this one as well, uh, with, with Florence and No Salvation Outside the Church, um, the first notable aspect of its uh, reception was the discovery of the free world. When, like I said, less than 100 years later, the top theologians who we consider perfectly orthodox today openly, you know, said that, you know, it's possible for people who aren't baptized uh, Christian during their lifetime to attain uh, salvation like that. So, you know, um, some people, liter fundamentalists or literalists would say they're directly contradicting Florence, but it's significant that the church allowed them to teach, that the church allowed them to craft doctrines that amended that statement like that. It, it's a, you can't divorce Florence from all those statements. Then less than a couple hundred years later, there's the condemnations of Jansenism, which took a very rigorous approach to no salvation outside the church. And the popes specifically condemned those aspects of Jansenism that advanced the Florentine uh, understanding of no salvation outside the church. Then in the 1900s, there was the con uh, condemnation of uh, Fenianism, uh, Leonard Feeney, who, uh, you know, advanced the uh, Florentine understanding of no salvation outside the church. So you see that again and again and again and again, in terms of uh, how the church receives this doctrine, it's constantly amended with ideas like invincible ignorance. You can't look at Florence in isolation, you have to look at its engagement with the rest of the magisterial tradition. And it touches on Caitlin's point, because one of the uh, big developments that happened once uh, uh, missionary activity began in the free world was that uh, people stu uh, understood, because uh, the, the initial claim with invincible ignorance was once someone is taught the gospel, they have no choice but to accept it, and then if they reject it, they will burn in hell forever. But very quickly, they started realizing how much corruption was involved in the missionary business. And so there's several theologians uh, who wrote claiming that with another amendment saying, look, if they haven't been properly evangelized, uh, we recognize that some of these missionaries have actually done a lot more harm than good. How can you ever possibly expect someone to accept the gospel if it's been presented to them in such a horrible manner? I mean, we're talking about some... Uh, uh, you know, conquerors out there who really believed in spreading religion by the sword. And theologians, you know, back in Europe acknowledged that, you know, there's just, uh, there's, there's so much leeway out there, because if you're not properly evangelized to you, you can't be expected to receive the mm. gospel like that. Yeah. And I think that's relevant to us today, considering how shattered Christianity is now, versus when it, you know, back at the height of Christendom with Florence. How can we expect people to hear the gospel message in, you know, a, a country as great as the United States whose Christian background has uh, been dominated historically by Protestant and fundamentalist uh, theology, which is very fractured compared to, uh, you know, Catholic doctrine like that. So, you know, when it comes to evangelizing to other people, 
even when we try to tell them the gospel, it's important that we do it well. And if we fail to do it well, that has implications over their salvation. But it's not a matter of, I know, you know, street corner preacher, you know, believe in repenting, you know, believe in the gospel and everything. Because if you don't evangelize well, it nullifies the act. You're doing more harm than good, even potentially. So that understanding that it's not throwing Bibles at people, that's not, that's not going to do it. You know, we, we have to reach out to people through that interreligious dialogue, through ecumenicism, you know, uh, like that. So, yeah. Um, I mean, the faith, I feel like, is kind of like a seed that needs to be planted, you know, yeah. having like the soil and then the sunlight and the water, and then it just kind of naturally grows. And it doesn't, like, our faith doesn't grow, like, overnight like people most likely aren't going to just accept the faith like right at face value when you hand it to them it's something they need to kind of sit with and think about and you know just sort of you know think about in their own conscience and then naturally the faith just kind of grows like a little yeah plant. well i like how, you know the franciscan mentality has it right in theory at least uh, preach the gospel, use words when necessary. It, it should be about living out the Christian life. Uh, praxis, uh, or orthopraxis over orthodoxy. I mean, obviously both are needed like yeah, that. Both, yeah, both definitely are needed. Chucking catechisms yeah. at people isn't going to cut it. We actually yeah. have to show people that it's a good way of life to lead. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, yeah, I mean, I think, obviously, like, I think that sort of mentality is important. But yeah, it is important to also use words. And also that quote, yeah, it's... I mean, it's attributed to St. Francis, but, like, he did not actually, you know, say those words. Well, yeah, so, yeah. I mean, yeah, but, a lot, a lot yeah. of quotes have been yeah, attributed to him, but he certainly yeah. lived it, right? Yeah, yeah, he, he, did, he, yeah. he was an actions guy. Uh, Josh, if you have any closing... Well, he also preached the gospel. Yes. yes. Uh, to, right. He, he, and he did, well, I should say, he, he did, in fact, use words. Uh, but with all this talk about praxis over orthodoxy, I do want to talk about orthodoxy. And I, I'd like to say a word that... Uh, that we don't like to say nowadays, heresy, uh, <laughs> heretic, uh, because heresy exists. And I'm reminded of a great passage in Lewis's The Great Divorce. Uh, it's the Episcopal, the Episcopal Bishop, uh, so, or big pardon, the Episcopal Ghost. So the ghost of a bishop, presumably of the Church of England, uh, who, what you find out, was a, a theological liberal. And he, he's a denizen of hell, and he goes up to, to visit the heavenly country, and he's being talked to by one of the residents of heaven, by one of the saints. And he's, he's sort of questioning, you know, why, why are you here? Why am I there? And the saint says to him, well, you were a heretic. <laughs> and he says, oh, that's, that's, that's absurd. I was sincere. Because, again, most... Heretics, most heresies are sincere. Yes, right. of course, they're the, they're the people who are just uh, doing it for money or for fame or whatever. And, you know, we, we could say the sociology of heresy. But nonetheless, it, to, use, uh, to use a metaphor for moral theology, getting drunk is a grave sin. Uh, getting drunk and but but it does not the fact that you are under the influence does not absolve you from full moral culpability from, yeah. from culpability yeah. of, of the mm -hmm. of the acts that you commit under that influence and so in 
the great divorce, you know, when, when the bishop is saying, well, I was sincere, and the saint is explaining, well, you know, yes, of course you, you were well-intentioned, but you also crossed a line, and your sincerity doesn't doesn't cut it yeah. any, anymore. And it, it's not a matter of you being sincere. It's a matter of you uh, believing in truth or not. And, of course, uh, discussion of heresy and, and heresy in Christianity, in contemporary Protestantism, in contemporary Catholicism. And again, I'm speaking, in this sense, I'm speaking of heresy as a rejection of uh, Christian orthodoxy in general. Uh, and that there are many different uh, aspects of, of, the, of this heresy. Yeah. But the fact is, heresy is still alive and well. Yeah, and it's yeah. posing a serious issue for us uh, nowadays. Yeah, I think that's an amazing point. And I think that also brings up, like, I guess the idea of um, conscience. Like, you know, I think, like, the role of conscience, because the church does um, call us, in a sense, to, like, you know, follow our conscience. But, like, what is conscience and how yeah. do we know our consciences are fully and properly formed because a person could say that they were following their conscience but like if it was not like you know if they didn't take the appropriate care to make sure it was properly formed then that's not necessarily them following their conscience it's like i don't know well, it's, it's like the uh, a, a jihadist you know i yeah. have no uh skepticism that they think they're doing the right thing when they're you know uh, you know, driving a car bomb, you know, in, into a, a building or something, you know, like that. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I think this wraps around very nicely uh, back to, you know, why we started this uh, discussion with that tension between the possibility of uh, people who uh, grew up in or uh, lived um, in other religions attaining uh, salvation. Well, you know, how, how difficult is that we, we and I think you know given Vatican II's call to evangelization and missionary activity we have to assume that it's it is difficult you know I mean we look at other uh, well I, I can't even say we look at other cultures that aren't Christian because quite frankly I don't think we live in a Christian culture anymore I mean let's look at ourselves right are there great people who grew up in uh, secular uh, postmodern America yeah you know everywhere um, but you know, I, I think this uh, country would be a lot different of a place if, uh, you know, we lived according to, you know, some good Christian and uh, Catholic uh, values like that. You know, you, you, there's a lot of problems in our society. There's a lot of problems with uh, uh, postmodern um, ways of life that, in my opinion, can be attributed to a lack of evangelization, a lack of missionary activity, even within our own Western culture like that. So it's vitally important that we embrace the Council's call to missionary activity, um, or else we're setting ourselves up for disaster, uh, both here on Earth, but then also yeah. up uh, you know, yeah. there. I mean, the eye, you know, get, the getting into the kingdom of God is already difficult enough, the, uh, you know, a camel going through the eye of a needle analogy, but then imagine a culture that fundamentally rejects Christ, how much more difficult it is in uh, that situation. Yeah. And also just remembering that call that um, I think Jesus said at the end of Matthew that um, to spread the gospel yeah. to all nations. Yeah. So that's like literally part of our call as 
Christians to yeah. spread the gospel. Yeah, I mean, I like being Catholic. I don't know about y'all, but and I think it's uh, been a pretty fulfilling life thus far. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, I love everything that the church teaches. I look forward to, you know, you know, getting married in the Catholic context, raising a family according to the church's values, because I legitimately think that it not only has its earthly benefits, but it has its eternal ones as well. I, I mean, my... Uh, one of my favorite professors I ever had said that the uh, social sciences, when done correctly, can't help but illustrate God's natural design. You know, this isn't strictly about eternal reward. I mean, that's uh, the most important part is unity with God, but it's manifest in those moments of God's love that we are blessed with, that we are gifted with, when we act in a manner that isn't according with those laws like that. So evangelization is vital to that. How can we expect people to pursue lives of holiness if uh, if we aren't demonstrating to them uh, the benefits like that? You know, it's improving their earthly lives and their heavenly lives, and uh, you know, and that's what loving your neighbor is all about. Um, I think that's about the. Yeah. We've got about a hour and a half or so into this. I think it's been a pretty good first podcast. So I appreciate you guys for all your contributions. And uh, thank you guys very much for tuning into this uh, inaugural episode of the revamped Catholic Chat. If there's any theological topics you'd like us to explore, please let us know in the comments below. Uh, Make sure to subscribe to us both on YouTube and on Spotify. And have a great day and God bless you.